everybody to our orthopedic trauma, trauma journal club on acetabulum fractures. I'm joined by my co-moderators today, uh, Dr. Andrew Chin, Dr. Adam Lee, and I'm Dr. Arn Maja. We have a phenomenal faculty lineup, including Dr. Chip Rout, Dr. Corey Collins, and Dr. Bruzabadi. Uh, we've got three great articles on acetabin. Uh, we're going to start off with all three of the videos, uh, followed by a question answer session, as well as a final wrap up with some of the take home messages. The learning objectives for uh, tonight's uh, Journal Club webinar is to understand the various factors that impact hip stability after posterior wall acetabular fractures. We also want to talk about some of the risk factors for conversions to total hip after acetabular fractures involving the posterior wall. And then finally, uh, consider some of the indications and advantages of prone versus lateral with the Coca Langenbach approach for transverse acetabular fractures. So, with that, uh, or the first article that we're actually going to discuss is uh, going to be with Dr. Uh, Rout. Uh, on determining stability in posterior wall acetabulum fractures. The second article that we picked for this uh, acetabulum journal club is risk factors for conversion to total hip arthroplasty after acetabular fractures involving posterior wall with Dr. Kuzabadi. And the final article is gonna be by Dr. Collins on the quality of radiographic reduction and perioperative complications for transverse acetabular fractures treated by the Coco Langenbach approach whether going prone versus lateral position. So with that, I'm gonna stop sharing my screen and we'll go straight into the videos discussing the various articles. Dr. Rao, thank you so much for joining us to discuss your article, Determining Stability in Posture Wall Acetabin Fracture. What uh, prompted you to do the study? Well, I would say the study was driven mostly by Dr. Farooz Zabadi and most likely the um, the study came like most studies do, probably just from a conversation. You know, he had been mentored by Dr. Tornetta during his medical school. And I think uh, during his residency at San Francisco, this was a confusing issue for uh, like so many orthopedic surgeons. And one day in the operating room, we were just discussing uh, how to sort it all out. And I think he just ran with the project uh, after that and decided to to look back to see all the patients that had had exam under anesthesia and fluoroscopy to try to compare the morphology of the hip and the injury to the clinical findings of stability. But he, uh, he you, did all the he did all the work. Uh, were you surprised um, by the finding that the history of dislocation did not correlate to instability during exam under anesthesia? Yeah, I think that's probably a, a surprising finding. I, I, I think we, uh, you know, we put a lot of uh, a lot of emphasis on the clinical ex the, the clinical exam, but before that, so much emphasis goes on the history and the injury mechanism, and sometimes just the violence of the trauma. And so, I was, uh, yeah, I would think that you know we would have a little higher correlation, but I, I would say that was a surprising finding. Along the same lines, were you uh, surprised that the percent femoral head coverage uh, did not correlate to instability? Or no, was no, no, that didn't surprise me at all. I, you know, I, um, 
I've been working for a long time and uh, just sort of focused on this one area. And so, you know, it, it, once you see enough patients, um, you start to realize that there's an incredible spectrum of injury. And uh, I, I know, you know, when this first became popular of measuring CT scans, and I think Dr. Moed popularized that. And, you know, I respect the work that he's done, but, you know, the, the, the publications or the findings that people were having about measuring posterior wall size really didn't correlate to the experiences I've been having for a long time. And um, so I, I, I wasn't surprised at that at all. Um, will you please share with us uh, <clears throat> your protocol for determining which posterior wall fractures you're taking to the OR? or exam under anesthesia, and which ones are you immediately fixing without EUA? Probably the easiest ones um, to examine are the ones that have been identified radiographically, and then they're going to surgery for something else. And so if you're having your ankle fixed or your patella fixed or your abdominal laparotomy, um, and you've got a, a poster wall injury, um, if it's possible and the host condition allows it, we'll just um, tag along to that anesthetic and examine the hip just to assure whether we think it's stable or, or not, just to make sure. Uh, and that really doesn't matter what the patient's history is. Uh, we just want to make sure that it's stable and it's, that's essentially um, you know, a, a, free, a free exam or a free exam under anesthesia. If the patient's not having another surgery and we're just trying to sort out who needs an exam or not, then a lot of factors come into play. Um, some would be the overall host condition. So if you give me a host that's not well enough to have a surgery, uh, then I'm probably just gonna manage it as best I can uh, with closed means and I don't really need an exam because the host isn't well enough for a surgery. But if you give me a, a viable host or someone that you know can stand to have an operation, then we'll almost always examine people that have had uh, dislocations that have, you know, uh, wall injuries that are for real. But um, I'll also examine people that have um, even just dislocations sometimes that are fairly violent dislocations. Sometimes you'll see just pure dislocations and the femoral head is really uh, displaced, you know, remote from the acetabulum. And um, we'll, we'll examine those patients, even though they don't have a wall injury, just to make sure that they're soft tissues are still competent to contain the hip. Uh, so I would say we probably over-examine people. And I, I don't really know the exact answer of who needs it and who really doesn't, but it's, it's always a lot better to know that someone has a stable hip than to uh, learn later that someone had an unstable hip and we'd miss one. So uh, in the early 90s, I missed unstable hips that I thought were going to be stable. And I just realized I wasn't so good at it. And so I became an overuser of examiner anesthesia and fluoroscopy pretty much for the entirety of my career. So I, I wish I could give you a formula, but I'll tell you, you know, size really doesn't matter. Location uh, really doesn't matter. If you tell me someone's got a caudal peripheral wall that doesn't really look like much, but the trainer tells me or the team doctor tells me that he had to relocate the guy three times on the field and in the training room. Well, that's significant history. I really don't need to do an EUA on that guy. That, that, that physician and trainer has already told me that they've done three reductions. <laughs> and, or if you send me someone from an outside hospital with a poster wall and they've had two dislocations in transit, um, I don't really need to examine that. I just need to fix it. So I think the history 
is so important in what we do. Uh, we we get obsessed a little bit with the radiographs and the CT scans and all these things, but I would really encourage people to pay attention to the history and to the initial films if you have those, and then what the other physicians that have already treated the patient have told you. Uh, <clears throat> if the hip is found to be stable under anesthesia, what is your protocol for weight bearing and posterior precautions? Well, I'm still uh, pretty much a scaredy cat uh, for patients and their compliance. So um, when I worked in the Northwest, people were pretty, I think, very compliant. And you know, when I moved to Texas, people aren't quite as compliant. Um, but we, uh, whether we fix them or not, I still uh, rehab them with protected weight bearing anywhere from three to six weeks, depending upon what's been done. Uh, and I don't do hip flexion precautions in uh, stabilized uh, joints. If they're stabilized and we fix them, then they're stable and we don't necessarily have to do that. Every once in a while, someone will be really unstable and I didn't realize that so their capsular injury will be so extensive and we'll have a subsequent dislocation after a fixation. It's pretty unusual, but it's, it's also pretty heartbreaking when it happens. But I, I um, you know, I, I, if you have someone that has a known dislocation after fixation, then we kind of get into abduction braces and things like that. But if you have a, a hip that's been stabilized with surgery, I don't use hip flexion precautions or things like that. We counsel the patients about getting off the toilet, you know, by abducting and externally rotating the hip and kind of leaning to the other side, if, as long as their well leg is well enough to do that. But uh, I do like a protected weight bearing for anywhere from four to six weeks after the injury. Does the doesn't mean they do it. It doesn't doesn't mean they do it, uh, but, but that's the education that we provide and the encouragement. Yeah. Uh, does the version of the acetabulum matter in determining stability of the posterior wall fractures? Mm, that's a good question. I I I would just say that uh, everything matters, and so I would say it's not just limited to the the osteology of the acetabulum but also just the osteology of the proximal femur can impact it as well, or the level of dysplasia can uh, you know, impact and, you know, a, a fairly small peripheral cranial wall injury in someone with a really shallow acetabulum is um, you know, not a good thing. A really peripheral wall injury in someone with a really deep acetabulum is you know, maybe not so, so troublesome. So I think it really depends. I think every, so the answer to your question is yes, uh, but I think other things, other osteological factors matter as well as uh, that version that you mentioned. Uh, final question. Uh, what do you think are, uh, what was the biggest limitation of the study? And if you could do it over again, what would you do in terms of study design? Well, I'd probably meet Dr. Farooza body in 1990 when I first started. And it probably would have been good to have had that conversation in 1990 and then just prospectively do it over the next uh, 25 years uh, together there uh, would have been good. And then we wouldn't have had to do it all retrospectively and we could have just logged it all and done it uh, better prospectively. So if I had it to do all over again, I'd get a time machine and go back and uh, do it prospectively. And uh, I'll, he'd need a time machine to go forward and I need a time machine to go backwards. So. Uh, but we could meet there in around 1990 and just get started and do it together over you know 24 years, and then we'd have quite a series. Great. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Rapp, for joining us and uh, for answering these questions. Um, thank you. Thanks for having me. Today, we have the pleasure of uh, interviewing Dr. Farooza Abadi from University of Washington at Harborview.
on his landmark article uh, titled Risk Factors for Conversion to Total Hip Arthroplasty After Acetabular Fractures Involving the Posterior Wall. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you. Um, so the first question I had for you is what prompted this study? Andrew, good, good question. So, you know, posterior wall acetabular fractures are one of the most common injuries that we orthopedic surgeons treat, especially pelvic and acetabular surgeons. And we know that the outcomes are extremely variable when treating these injuries. And we wanted to see, you know, what were some risk factors that led to poor outcomes? Poor outcomes meaning patients that required a total hip uh, arthroplasty. If we were able to identify some risk factors, not only would be able to counsel patients on potentially having a poor outcome and needing a total hit, but potentially we could alter treatment plans for these patients as more and more data was suggesting that primary total hip arthroplasty may potentially be an option for some potential patients. Great. And what was your hypothesis? Yeah, so our hypothesis was really, you know, to look, uh, our hypothesis with the, was that there were specific factors that would potentially lead to a higher number of patients or a higher percentage of patients requiring a total hip arthroplasty. And we thought that radiographic features of injury would potentially correlate with poor outcomes needing a total hip arthroplasty. We thought that fracture reduction would definitely affect outcomes, and we wanted to look at that. And lastly, we thought that these radiographic features would potentially correlate with reduction quality, which would lead to altered outcomes. All right, great. And so what were your key findings that you found from your article? Yeah, so this was a retrospective study really looking at five years worth of uh, pelvic, uh, sorry, five years worth of posterior wall acetabular fractures uh, that was done at our institution. And we wanted to look at patients that were at least four years out from injury. If you look at previous papers, which were great papers looking at posterior wall acetabular fractures, some of these papers had limitations in that they'd only looked one year out or they'd only looked two years out. And we wanted to really look farther out. So we want to look at patients that were at least four years out from injury. And the other limitations, some of these other papers were that they, when they looked at reduction quality, they were using x-rays or cutoffs of one centimeter. And really, we wanted to look at cutoffs of looking at on a millimeter level. So much more micro, much more on a micro level in terms of reduction quality and see if that altered um, the outcomes. Based on this retrospective study, what we found is that the overall conversion rate to total hip arthroplasty in this cohort was 17%. And that's at the final follow-up. So that's at about seven years. When we looked at the two-year mark, about 5% of the patients required a total hip arthroplasty. And at about five years, about 14% of the patients required a total hip arthroplasty. So this gave us some sense of how long do we need to follow these patients uh, long-term, what to potentially tell these patients. Now, the key is we were looking for risk factors that led to poor outcomes. And the five risk factors that we really chose to focus on was um, dislocation. So if a patient had a dislocation, which required a reduction, if there's significant wall comminution, wall comminution being more than three pieces for the posterior wall, if there was intraarticular debris in the joint, if there was acetabular impaction, if there was any sort of femoral head lesion that we identified intraoperatively or on uh, preoperative CT scan, 
And then really to look at combined mechanisms. So in terms of if a patient had a T-type with a posterior wall or associated fracture patterns that had a posterior wall, was that a risk factor for uh, total hip arthroplasty? Now that when we looked at each one of those within itself, what we found was that there was higher rates of total hip arthroplasty in patients, for example, who had impaction, wall comminution, um, acetabular, uh, femoral head, sorry, femoral head lesions. But when we looked at them, when we looked at each one, it wasn't statistically significant, even though the rate was higher. But when we started combining these injuries and what we called was severe injuries, and severe injuries was patients that had all five of these characteristics. These patients had a much higher rate of requiring a total hip arthroplasty. And that was on the order of 50% of these patients who had these severe injuries required a total hip arthroplasty. So this was the highest uh, cohort. So if you have a patient that has all of these five characteristics, then you know that these patients are potentially going to be at extremely high risk of requiring a total uh, hip arthroplasty. And there's their survivorship also significantly decreased. Now, when we look at reduction quality, you know, this just proved what many people thought and we had post-operative CT scans on all these patients is that the patients that had a reduction within one millimeter of being anatomic none of those patients required a total hip arthroplasty. Between one and four millimeters of malreduction, the annual rate of requiring a total hip arthroplasty was about 1.4, 1.5%. And then when the reduction was off more than four millimeters, the annual rate of requiring a total hip arthroplasty was about 10.5, 10.6%. So reduction really does matter, specifically here if the reduction was off more than four millimeters, you're going to be at a significantly higher risk of requiring a total hip uh, arthroplasty. We did kind of a uh, assessment of age and looking at where the cutoff was in terms of, you know, at what age were you at increased risk of requiring a total hip arthroplasty? That was a patient about roughly over 47 years old, uh, had a higher rate of requiring a total hip arthroplasty. And lastly, when we looked at those five factors that I mentioned, and in regards to those five factors leading to, leading to a poor reduction, what we noticed is if you had a severe injury, having all five of those factors, you're much more likely to have a poor reduction, which will lead to a higher rate of needing a total hip arthroplasty. And those were the major findings of the paper. Being a retrospective study, certainly there are um, inherent limitations to your study. Um, what other limitations did you find um, while conducting yours? Yeah, so, you know, in this study, uh, being that, you know, like many centers, we're a regional center. And so we have relatively poor follow-up. And so in this case, we've got about 50% follow-up rate with the phone calls. Uh, I have to give credit to the co-authors and specifically Benjamin Hamilton for calling all these patients and trying to get follow-up on them. But for a phone study, we got, which was a, I thought was a good rate of follow-up, it was about 50%. The other limitation of this study really is that we don't have radiographic follow-up that's you know five, seven, nine years out. We only have the primary outcome measure and some outcome scores that we're utilizing. So it would be extremely helpful and useful, for example, when you're looking at something like dislocation, if we had 
um, radiographs at the final follow-up or radiographs farther out than we did. So that's one of the major limitations of this study. And specifically, are you mentioning the, the reason to convert to a total hip arthroplasty as far exactly. as arthritis versus avascular necrosis or? Exactly, exactly. Okay. All right. And then how do you use this information in your practice uh, to, to help counsel patients? Yes. So that, that's, that's really where the utility of this comes in, because many patients with acetabular fractures want to know, you know, what are my acute complications when you discuss infection, bleeding, but long-term complications, they all kind of want to know what's my risk of arthritis. And so using this guideline, specifically for poster wasp tablet fractures, I can say your risk of arthritis requiring a total hip arthroplasty at five years out is roughly, um, sorry, at two years out is roughly 5%. And so that gives them a rough guideline. Now, based on their fracture characteristics, let's say they had impaction, dislocation, intraarticular debris, comminution, then I'm going to be telling them, you know, you had a more severe injury and your risk of needing a total hip arthroplasty may be 50%. And, um, you know, we can have that discussion preoperatively even if they're an elderly patient that has these severe injuries in regards to, you know, what are my options? You know, a lot of patients would say, why don't you give me a total hip arthroplasty now? And so some of these patients may qualify for an acute total hip arthroplasty based on the discussion with them and the joint surgeon that's going to be performing it. We're going to dive right in and ask him what was going on at the time that prompted the change in practice. So uh, I was trained in Tampa where we learn um, posterior approaches, the approaches to the acetabulum uh, through the Coker-Langenbeck in the lateral position. And it seemed really to be um, who was doing what in terms of lateral versus prone uh, based on where you were trained. So uh, I believe at the time, most of the shock trauma guys were doing lateral approach. Most of uh, the Tampa guys were doing lateral approach. And uh, some of the other centers, I think uh, Hospital for Special Surgery and I think um, Harborview were mostly doing prone. Um, and at a lot of the meetings, uh, the pelvis meetings and the, the gen more general meetings, um, there was a lot of dogma being thrown around about you, you should definitely do this um, by the prone approach. Otherwise, I think the implication was you don't know what you're doing. So uh, I thought my training was really good and our um, mentor in pelvis and acetabular surgery was Tommy Deepasqual. And he learned the, the coker in the lateral position, and that's what he taught us. And I thought his results were fantastic, and our results were pretty good. So around, I think, um, 2002, 2003, I decided uh, to see what the other way was. So uh, I'd done most of mine in the lateral position. So I started doing more in the prone position. And then I got comfortable over a few cases. And then I, I did all of them in the prone position for oh, two years or so, three years, and to try to really di dive deep into the, see how that was going to go. So basically, I had set up 
a two cohort study with the difference being at, in the middle of the, of the series, uh, I changed positioning for the Coker Langebeck. And as it turns out, um, I talked to some of my friends, uh, Klaus Zaji and Mike Archdeacon, and they had done something similar. So Saji and I had both made a switch within a couple of months of each other uh, from lateral to prone. And he was basically doing the exact same thing and feeling his way through the doing the prone um, method. So we, we decided to pool our series and look at outcomes, both radiographic and clinical, and see what, how that would tell us. And you alluded to the how that change in practice prompted the study design of kind of pre-change, post-change, and two surgeons pulling the results. Is there anything different that you would do now for in regard to study design? I guess you could try to make it prospective instead of retrospective, but what there's not really going to be a difference. Um, we were doing it dedicated one way. We made the switch. There was probably a little bit of a learning curve, um, but I think we were up to speed pretty quick. And then we created as the second cohort of the, about the same number and then did our analysis. And I don't think making it prospective would change any of that. That's a perfect segue into the, what were the major findings? I think the relevance of the positioning is really more important. Um, for transtectal fractures, right? That's the one that's involves the acetabular dome and is more critical to outcome. Um, so we subdivided the patients into transtectal transverse fractures and other transverse fractures. And then we did two subgroup analyses of those two groups. And what we found was that uh, in the prone position, we got a little bit better reduction. And I think it was a P of uh, 0.8, so a trend for a little bit better quality of reduction in the prone position. But the difference was in actuality was really only 0.8 of a millimeter. So it was less than a millimeter difference in the reduction quality. And we're really talking about the reduction quality of the anterior part of the transverse fracture, which is visible on the AP x-ray along the iliopectineal line. It didn't make a huge difference. So at the end, I think both Claude and I went back to picking and choosing which case we wanted to do prone and which case we wanted to do lateral. The next natural question is, what is your algorithm for deciding which to do which? Is weight a consideration? Are there other patient factors or injury factors that push you into the, hey, this is a lateral type approach versus a prone type approach? Well, so which, which in, in, in theory, uh, the problem is the weight of the femoral head um, in the lateral position. The femoral head will drive the ischiopubic segment uh, with gravity uh, and cause further displacement, which you then have to overcome with clamp placement or some other reduction method to get the ischiopubic segment back to the intact uh, remainder of the pelvis. So for me, I look at the, the ones that are widely displaced as ones that are 
most unstable and the soft, you know, the soft tissues are going to be torn up. And those are probably the ones that when you position them lateral, they're going to displace even further. So lesser displacement uh, on your initial evaluation probably means those are uh, more stable fractures and might uh, be a little bit easier treated in the lateral position. People have talked about weight in particular. I think body habitus is probably as or more important because people just have different anatomies. And so you can have somebody with a great big booty who's going to have 10 inches of subcutaneous tissue and a lot of weight on the femoral head. Uh, or like in Texas, we'll have men that weigh 300, 350, but it's all gut and they've got no butt. So the dissection may be more straightforward and um, the weight may not be so much on the, you know, displacement of the femoral head. So body habits is probably as important as weight in deciding. So for uh, the lateral position, I would choose less displacement and, you know, maybe uh, a bigger person. So I know that's, that sounds contrary and, and kind of contradict myself, but one of the other advantages of the lateral approach is that the tissues tend to sort of fall away. And when you're working in the prone position, you've got this big flap of butt uh, falling into your incision and blocking your view. So you end up having to hunch over and get a retract, get the sciatic nerve retractor in there and uh, lever up on the posterior flap. Well, if you're standing up tall and you're looking down on the, on the incision, the tissues sort of have opened up for you which raises one, another benefit, which is that other observers in the OR or assistants, um, they like the lateral position a whole lot more than they like the prone position. So if you're trying to teach, it's a lot easier to teach with the patient in the lateral position. Do you see a big difference in positioning time or setup time for one versus the other? I think, well, it takes a little longer to put someone prone because you've got to pad up the face and you've got to be a little more careful with anesthesia uh, involvement in the positioning, chest rolls. So I think most orthopedic rooms are savvy in positioning lateral. So that's kind of a chip shot, but the prone takes a little bit more work and the attending has to be there a little more present. Is there any kind of parting synopsis that you'd like to leave, leave with us before we wrap up? No, I mean, there's a couple other points that need to be made. Um, if you want to do a surgical dislocation, um, you're probably going to do that in the lateral position. So I think that would be very difficult in the prone position. Um, and after that, I, I think, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a toss up. I, I had, I think one of the reasons I changed originally was I had a, a really difficult case in a probably BMI 60 kind of patient with a widely displaced transverse fracture that um, I really struggled with. And she still sort of burned into my psyche as what can happen in the lateral position. And that was one of the prompting points. So if you've got a wide, again, if you've got a widely displaced transtectal transverse and a big person, you probably want to do that prone. Thank you guys again for joining us. Uh, I guess we'll start off with the question and answer session. Dr. Furuzabadi, uh, first question for you. Uh, 
you know, the article on determining stability and post-dual acetabin pressure, you know, you were the lead author on that. I don't know if you wanted to share anything, any insights or your findings or take home messages from that paper. I think Dr. Raup did a great job uh, going through that paper. You know, there's one patient in particular that kind of sparked my interest in that study. Um, and it was a nurse from Montana and she had a really small posterior wall and the physician there thought, what he did was appropriate and treated it non-operatively. And over the subsequent three to four months, she kept saying, I think I'm dislocating and it's popping back in. He got x-rays in clinic, it was reduced. And I saw her at about four to five months and uh, she was frankly dislocating every time she tried to flex. And I'd say that's probably one of the hardest uh, fractures I've had to treat, I had to, revised that a couple of times. It just couldn't get it stable. It was the tiniest wall. And that was four months out. And uh, I kept remembering what I learned in fellowship from Dr. Rao. He, he gave us a specific patient example on a Friday morning about a patient that he got that uh, was a chronic dislocator. And in the end, he couldn't keep this hip socket in and needed a hip spica. And that's the, in an adult patient to use a hip spica is extremely challenging, not something that we want to do. And I thought for that patient, that's what I was going to have to do. And I had to, I ended up having to brace her uh, with an abduction brace, not letting her flex and repair her capsule multiple times. And so that patient is what kind of got me going on. Um, you know, there's got to be other things involved. We can't just think of posterior wall size. We can't just think of dislocation. And as Dr. Rao alluded to, the history is really important. It's a combination of a lot of things, the osteology, the exit point, the size, all these things matter. So you can't just hang your hat on one thing. Yeah, the, the, that brings us to our first question. We had uh, attendee ask, um, you know, you mentioned this was four months old, requiring a hip psycho, but what about an acute setting? What do you do for, you know, this is for all the, uh, invited faculty for a, you know, a caudal, more peripheral, very small wall fragment that is more so capsule or labral injury in manner than a bony injury. Uh, what, what do you do for those sort of uh, fracture patterns acutely, not four months yeah. after? I mean, I was trained by Chip, so I, a lot of what I say comes from what I learned from him. And so um, I'm very aggressive with doing exams under anesthesia, even if it's a really small wall, if they got a history of dislocation, uh, even if it's low. What we found in that study was that the walls that even were less than 20%, which were, we found we had 22 of them, the ones that were unstable were the ones that dislocated. So dislocation, I think, matters, but I think it matters more so in the really small walls and not in the obvious big walls. And so... Um, I'm, I'm aggressive with doing an exam under anesthesia or fixing them because I don't want to deal with that complication three, four months down the line, because I'm not good at fixing that, you know, that problem. Uh, I haven't found a good treatment for that. So I try to avoid it if I can at all. I think your question was, what do you do with just a capsular injury? And it, the answer is just suture, suture anchors are usually in this, this day and age are the best if you don't have access to suture anchors, uh, in the old days, we used to just put a recon plate on the area of the wall, even though the wall's not broken. And then just before you put it down with the screws, you'd sew the capsule up to that so that you were making a um, anchoring spot 
on the back part of the wall using a recon plate or a third tubular plate. It doesn't have to be a recon plate, just some, some type of a device that has holes in it that you can sew up to. But in today's world, just suture anchors work fine. I think one of the participants was asking about the caudal labral tear and the, the caudal labral tear is not the same as an anterior labral tear in an athlete. And so the, the, for posterior wall acetabular fractures that are hinged cranially and caudally tension failures, which are most of them, um, that labrum tear is a little stump that's on them. And usually you can either debride that away at the very end of the operation, you can use it as a lever to, you know, like a, a manipulative tool for the wall when you're cleaning it. But then you can just either tuck it back in the capsule or excise it before you close. I think Dr. Collins just uh, posted a question about, uh, can you guys briefly describe how you're doing your exam under anesthesia for the attendees? Yeah, I would just say that it's, it's, it's not what a lot of people think. It's the C-arm is put on the same side of the patient. It's rolled back 30 to 45 degrees to where you can have an obturator oblique, which allows the C-arm to not obstruct the patient's maneuvering of their limb. Once you have the image that you want, uh, I just flex the hip up through a 30, 40, 50, you know, or whatever, 30, 45, 60, and 90 degrees and take selective images. You can do a fluoro if you want to, but uh, that's all I do. It, it, there are people that, you know, lean on it and put their body weight on it and adduct at 30 degrees and then internally rotate at 45 degrees and put the hip in these unusual positions. And I don't do that. I, I, I mostly just put the limb in a position that a patient will get into if they're getting up out of a chair and try to reproduce some maneuver that they would do in everyday life. And then if they're subluxating, it's unstable. If they're not, then they're not. And then it's stable. So I, I don't put my body weight on. You see people leaning on the hip and you know tr forcefully trying to dislocate the hip, but we don't do that. Just sort of maneuver the limb. But the C-arm needs to be on the ipsilateral side and roll back to a obturator oblique so it doesn't get in the way of the exam. And that's about it. Uh, Dr. Fruzabadi, you mentioned uh, the size of the posterior wall even being smaller than 20%. And if there's a history of dislocation, then you're, you know, you're doing an exam under anesthesia. What about Again, small fragments, extremely small fragments, but no history of dislocation. Um, if, the, if those are cranial, and I'm not sure if they've dislocated or not, then I'm still doing an EUA. If there's been absolutely no dislocation and they're caudal peripheral wall, then I'm not doing an EUA. Are you doing a similar EUA maneuver that... Dr. Rout described? I am. So I'm flexing to 90, something, you know, and I'll try to get even to 100 just if they got like a deep seated couch and they're going to be going past uh, 90. I do add about 10 degrees of internal rotation. Um, and if it's going to be somebody who's going to be a non compliant uh, patient or a drug addict, uh, I'm putting axial force, but not to the degree of putting your whole body into it. I'm just trying to get a sense of how rock stable is this thing. And I, you know, I also protect their weight bearing, uh, as was mentioned before, but some of these patients aren't going to follow those restrictions, especially when it comes to weight bearing. No one in Texas follows those, those uh, restrictions. <laughs> Zero. Dr. Collins, what about you? Uh, what are you guys doing out at Fort Worth for your exam under anesthesia, as well as for 
poster wall fragments? I uh, <clears throat> I pretty much do what Chip and Reza have talked about. And I think the reason for my question was, um, I think all medical tests should probably be standardized, right? When you get a CVC or a whatever, it's standardized, right? And you have normals, you have abnormals, but we haven't really done a good job of standardizing our exam. So I, I do think what Chip said is right. Some people will really hog on it. And there are probably some people that have 100% quote instability rate because they're really mashing on it. And you can probably dislocate a normal hip if you push hard enough in a paralyzed patient, you know? So it's something we ought to work toward is standardizing how, uh, how we do the, the exam. To, to piggyback on that, Dr. Collins and the rest of the panelists, what, what is the threshold? Are you looking for subluxation uh, grossly? What if there's a millimeter of shuck or is it you know, full-on dislocation that you're looking for as the threshold? You'll have, to, you'll, have to, you'll have to tell me what shuck means because I don't, what is shuck? Sorry, uh, the, to be more precise, subluxation that's not a frank dislocation. If you have an incongruent hip, then I consider that unstable. You don't Correct. have to, you don't have to frankly dislocate for me to go back and fix it because I want to avoid I want to avoid micromotion in the healing process because it may not heal if it's got motion. So if it's incongruent at all, then I'm going to be fixing it. I agree with that. I have a question um, about going back to Dr. Perez's body study on conversion to total hip arthroplasty. Are there certain uh, geriatric patients or certain patients that you can you would start considering for total hip arthroplasty for poster wall? Yeah, you know that's a really hard question to ask me because I'm not I don't I don't fix joints. So if I was a total joint surgeon, um, then I think my threshold for doing a primary total joint or even referring for a primary total joint in a patient that was not a polytraumatized patient would be a lot lower, but since I don't do them, uh, I don't think I'm the right person to ask because I've had, you know, elderly patients who have a really comminuted wall with femoral head lesions, and those patients may have done better with the total joints. Um, and that's even, even the worst case, case scenario, we found the conversion rate was 50%. So that means that 50% didn't need a total joint. Um, and there's all the other factors this is, that are associated with doing an acute total hip arthroplasty in a trauma setting. It's just not the most optimal environment, I think, to do a total joint arthroplasty. So I think that's probably a better question for somebody that does both those surgeries often. Sure. Any other thoughts from the panelists? Go ahead, Corey. Well, I had one comment on what Reza just said. I mean, instability is probably multifactorial, right? So <clears throat> if you have some dynamic instabilities that are occur after acetabular fracture that's fixed or not fixed, you know, you may move on to a total joint and they may have ongoing instability, which would be just, you know, the worst case scenario, right? And I don't do joints, so I don't know if that's a real problem or just my perception. But be interested to hear what Chip and Reza have to say about that. 
Yeah, I think I think the more stable of an environment you can provide, uh, be it bony or soft tissue, you're probably going to have more of a success with a total joint arthroplasty. Um, but again, that's coming from somebody that doesn't do them. Yeah, I don't have any experience with acute primary arthroplasty in patients with these injuries. First of all, elders don't usually get posterior walls. So I, you're already talking about a subset of people that are small. And then my experience with treating posterior wall fractures in elders has been good with primary repair. So I'm, I'm not interested in doing arthroplasty and acute fracture dislocations in elders who are sick people usually if they even have a posterior wall. So it's just, it's not a common pattern in elders. So uh, to just kind of talk a little bit more about that question about ORF plus arthroplasty, or have any of you participated or are currently participating in cases with a combined arthroplasty surgeon where you come in and uh, provide uh, some uh, open reduction total fixation to reconstruct the acetabulum so that they can actually put a, a, a prosthesis in? Yeah, I've probably done about that 10 times in my career since 1989. And usually it's because the hip can't be made stable and it's because the femoral head's got a severe cranial lateral impaction injury. Yeah, in my limited experience and just talking to folks that do it, I think no matter what you do, it's important if the columns are not stable for you to absolutely stabilize the column and not, um, not rely on a cup with screws or any sort of fixation through your cup to stabilize the columns. So no matter what, I think it's very important to stabilize the columns, even if you're thinking of doing a, a total hip arthroplasty in the acute setting. One of the things that's phenomenal to me is the, the time and the money and then the effort that's spent on purifying a patient before an arthroplasty in elective situation. And um, the, amount of in, you know, the amount of instability that occurs in total joint arthroplasty when there's no fracture and when there's no soft tissue injury other than what the scalpel and the bovie makes or the osteotome makes that the surgeon puts on the patient with a capsular, capsular division, whatever. And then you expect someone who's been exploded, who had no perhaps pre-medical care, they're sick as can be, and you're going to hang an arthroplasty on that and expect that it's going to do well. I, I, I know what the studies show, but you know, if you talk to me just as a human in real terms, those two are extremely disconnected things. But I also understand that acetabular fractures are complicated. They're hard to do. People have a hard time doing a good job at them. And so I understand their frustration if they can't make the hip stable or they would just rather do the total joint. I understand that. But sometimes, you know, we have to do what the patient needs, not what the doctor wants to do, uh, myself included. There's a couple more questions from the audience and one for Dr. Collins that I'll start with him and then go to the uh, other faculty. Uh, it's kind of a two-pronged question. Uh, so for Dr. Collins, who noted that he will do prone versus lateral based on a variety of factors and, and does both approaches, uh, the participant asked if sciatic nerve preoperative palsy has any consideration for uh, doing one approach versus the other. And then for the other faculty, are you doing one approach versus the other? Are you doing it variably or 
one way and do you have any indications for doing it one way versus the other if you are doing both positionings? So I, th I think that question came out of a couple of recent papers that showed a different um, rate of static nerve palsy uh, depending on positioning. Um, I've spent very little time through the notch. Um, and I'll palpate and I'll apply clamps, but um, I'm really, really uh, uh, hesitant to use the sciatic nerve retractor. I just don't use it very much. So I'll sneak in and out of the uh, notch to palpate or place a clamp. Um, but as soon as we get some hardware in there, I'll take the clamp out. And so I'm spending, uh, moving things along, trying to diminish clamp time through the notch. And I'm not really going up there um, as much as some. I remember seeing a couple of cases in fellowship and the static nerve retractor was in there for four hours and, um, you know, go figure. Uh, so our series was, I think, two uh, groups of 33. I think there was one sciatic nerve palsy out of 66 and it was a partial. Um, and I think I'd attribute the low rate or relatively low rate to just being thoughtful about using what you're doing. So there are several questions or a question about the screw and the inlet view is essentially impossible to do with the patient in the lateral decubitus. It's, it's anything is doable. You can do anything you want to do, but uh, I'll just say I haven't done a lateral decubitus acetabular fracture uh, since Heather Valier was my fellow. And um, there's a, that, there was a driving moment that sort of uh, put me in that situation and I'll just tell you the imaging is better. The cleaning of the transverse is extremely easier with the patient prone. Everything is better prone other than the risk on the blindness and the tube access for the anesthesiologist. So as far as I'm concerned, um, I, I can't remember when Heather was a fellow. It was 20 years ago, I think. And uh, I haven't done a lateral Coker Langenbeck since then. On that note, uh, have any of you seen uh blindness in a patient from being in a prone position for extended period of times? And if so, how, how frequent? I've never had it, but I know people that have had patients that, 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 but I also know people that have used the Jackson table and flipped patients on the ground too. So, I mean, anything can happen in the operating room, but if you keep the pressure off the eyes and you inspect the eyes yourself, so I, I just look at the eyes every time myself and look at the anesthesiologist and say, keep the pressure off the eyes, no hypotensive anesthesia, right? And they go, right. But, you know, I, uh, I've seen, you know, if you work long enough, Arun, you'll, you'll see every complication, but I, I haven't had a blind patient, but I certainly know people that have had uh, patients with partial and uh, real blindness. But, uh, you know, I've had a patient who infarcted both of his renal arteries. I had a patient that awakened, I shared with Dr. Benershkin when we both got through operating on for different things, she woke up with a T10 paraplegia. Uh, so they thought she had had an artery of a Damkowitz injury. She's morbidly obese. So there are all kinds of things that can happen that are just terrible things that happen to people as a result of the surgeries that we do. And, and the only thing I would add to that is I, I operate on patients in the prone position. That's how I was trained. I'm just more comfortable with it. I've done some patients in the lateral position. If they if rarely, if I think they need a trochosteotomy. Um, but one important thing is if you are going to use the sciatic nerve retractor, and I think Dr. Routes, the one that needed the bent knee retractor is you want to make sure that the, the knees bent. You also want to watch the assistant that's holding on to that retractor and the angle at which that retractor is leaning towards. Because the edges of that retractor, if you're not careful, can dig into the sciatic nerve. 
And as the surgeon, you're the one looking at the nerve, you're looking at the retractor, you have to constantly keep an eye on the angle at which they're retracting that. So I don't use that retractor all the time, but in cases where I do need it for larger patients, I'm constantly watching it uh, to make sure it's not digging into the nerve. And I don't think my palsy rate is much higher because I'm, I'm going prone. I, that study for me was hard to really understand. We just, we just uh, published not too long ago, Kareem Shat published our series of just uh, morbidly obese people and the incidence of sciatic nerve palsies and things like that. And we didn't have any, and we, these are huge people and we use a sciatic nerve retractor frequently for them just to be able to retract the buttock muscle mass. But the reality is, is we just don't leave it in there. Dr. Collins made a good point. We don't leave it in there in a sustained manner. We uh, get it off of there every once in a while just to go do other things. I think of, you know, four hours of sustained retraction on the nerve, not a good idea, no matter what you use. Dr. Collins, since you're the, the main lateral physician user, there was a couple of questions about if you need to do an anterior column for a transverse component, any, any tips on, on getting the imaging that Dr. Rout alluded to not being quite as easy in the lateral position or start point, et cetera? It's much, I, I didn't say not as easy. I said it was terribly difficult. So, I mean, that's the problem with uh, doing do, do it lateral, right? And um, if you have a transverse fracture, the hardest part to see is obviously the anterior part, right? So you can see visually the posterior elements of the transverse, and you can palpate that easily through the notch. But the further you get anterior, the more difficult it is to palpate, maybe. And then it certainly is more difficult to image. So in our study, I mean, that's, that's where the malreduction was predictably. It was far anterior and, um, you know, fortunately it wasn't typically massive, but it's a small malreduction, which, you know, has some impact and uh, I think that's just the way it is. But I'll, I'll tell you again, Adam, so uh, my indication is if I'm doing a posterior wall, I'll almost always do it lateral because everybody can see and um, there's 0.0, 0 .0 chance that the head is gonna cause displacement of, the, um, of a transverse. and. So Reza said, you know, if you want to do a surgical dislocation or a trochosteotomy, um, some people can't be prone because they're sick, right? If they've got bad lung injury or they're pretty fresh trauma. Um, so there so are medications. Can I ask a question? Why do they prone people with bad lungs then? If they, if that's bad for the lungs, I'm just curious. But I mean, Chip, have you, you've had patients that have gone prone and then crapped out and you got to abort. Right. I've had patients supine do that. Yeah. Okay. But I've, I don't think it was due to their positioning. Uh, I'm just saying I, there's, I don't know about that. Okay. Well, I'll just say that I've had patients supine lateral and prone that have all had issues. And I, and I also know that when you put someone prone, um, that's what they do for ICUs for people that have terrible lungs. Uh, I don't disagree with that, but when you flip somebody and they decompensate, you unflip them and you stop what you're doing and you don't do that. So I've had that happen a couple of times. Well, typically that means the endotracheal tube is beyond the carina. 
and so what you'll find is typically when the patients aren't doing well from a pulmonary standpoint, when you put them prone, the endotracheal tube is in the right mainstem bronchus and not at, above the carina. So one way to solve that is to put the C-arm right on their chest and you'll see that and they can actually, some of them can correct that while the patient's prone. But I'm just giving you my experience. Okay. I'll keep that in mind. The invited faculty tell us uh, their post, uh, post-operative rehabilitation strategy that they use you know, uh, in terms of weight bearing as well as what sort of posterior precautions are you using? Are you using both a knee mobilizer as well as an abduction brace? So I, I, I don't use posterior hip precautions. I think if you fixed it, it should be stable. In the rare cases where you have a massive capsular injury and you're questioning your capsular repair, uh, then that's the only time I'd use posterior hip precautions. In terms of weight bearing, I let them uh, do partial progressive weight bearing starting at six weeks, unless they've had impaction. If they've had impaction, then I wait the full three months. And they're gonna be they're gonna be toe touch weight bearing up to the six week point. I have nothing to add. Uh, I will say that there, uh, I probably am a little bit slower to progress to full weight bearing. Um, and there are actually times that I will kind of try to dial back the rehab. So if somebody's got an osteoporotic fracture and there was dome impaction or something like that, that I've worked pretty hard to uh, reduce, I will specifically write in the um, PT console, um, please avoid focused PT on the hip and thigh. Uh, like butt crunches and leg lifts and that sort of thing. Because, you know, what's the natural history of that? Probably uh, settling of your reduction. So for those people, I'll sort of uh, do allow PT light and basically just get them up for gait training and general mobility to the chair and try to avoid hip exercise. I don't, I don't, I try to avoid any PT uh, till at least six weeks because you never know what you're going to get with PT. And uh, if they got, if they got any sort of uh, abnormal, grossly abnormal gait, then I'll send them to PT. But I, for the hip socket, I don't know how much PT helps. And I think it could actually hurt if they start too soon. But at the same time, I, listen, I totally agree. I thought this a lot it sounds like you have too yeah but if you don't actively discourage pt there's a huge pressure institutionally and uh, on other service lines in the hospital to get pt going on them to get them through the system faster and god knows how many people go home and end up with home health pt and they're doing bands and they're doing donkey kicks and it's yeah, for, I should have made that more clear. For in-hospital, while they're there to get them up and going, PT can work with them. It's when they leave the hospital and they go to a non-standardized system where PT can do whatever they want. Once they get discharged, that's when I'm worried about PT, not when PT's trying to get them up with crutches in the hospital. Just uh, one more question about the prone versus lateral positioning. Has anyone had to... Uh 
treat a pregnant patient that required to be in a lateral position at all with acetabin pressure? Sounds like I'm prone. What was the question again, Arun? Uh, just a pregnant patient, if that, you know, required to be in a lateral position. Dr. Rao, you mentioned you did one prone. Do you remember which stage of her trimester? I've, I've done about 10 prone and uh, about six of them that have been in the, the second to third trimesters. Uh, one of them was really late. Um, but they just, they bring a nurse and they do this tocography and they do a toco monitor and they put it on the abdomen and you just have to make sure the rolls allow the, the belly to hang. So it just, it's a, it's a little bit more as far as, but it's like taking care of anybody who's morbidly obese. It's the same type of thing, except they come with a toco device and a toco nurse. And so you have to sit there during the operation here to whoosh, 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 whoosh the whole time. So uh, I've done that uh, probably eight to 10 times in my career. But you can do them lateral if you want to. Um, lateral, if, if that makes you feel better, you can do a lateral, but you can also do them prone. I, th I think, you know, I just sort of do what the fracture demands. And so if it's like Dr. Collins is saying, it's a transtectal transverse with a posterior wall, and you think it needs a prone, you don't have to deny the patient the position because of their abdomen, whether it's man, woman, or child. A, a, a pregnant or morbidly obese abdomen is not a contraindication to the position that you choose. You just have to make sure that the rolls allow for the belly to be suspended so that it's not putting pressure and harming their ventilatory efforts. All right, with that, uh, you know, we're at nine o'clock, so maybe uh, time to wrap it up unless anybody else has something to say. Share my screen. I would just I would I would just add that uh, there's a great AO pelvic course that comes up in a month or two, and I would just say that you know, probably some of the people here are on the faculty I don't know if they are or not but uh, that's a it's in Tampa and you can look and so if you have enough interest to sign on to the Journal Club tonight you probably have enough interest to go to the course and it'll be live with Cadaver course so I would just uh, advise the participants to know about that. With that uh, we'll wrap up and talk about some of the uh, take home messages. Um, the invited faculty mentioned uh, great points that a lot of things go into mattering for posterior wall stability uh, and that size necessarily does not. So the size less than 30 uh, or sorry, less than 20 is not a reliable indicator for stability. Uh, if there's any questions, concern, examine anesthesia, it seems to be very much a liberal use of it in order to provide the patient the appropriate care. And then uh, Dr. Rowden um, mentioned the history. History really matters and what other providers are telling you matters. Um, acetab fractures with posterior wall involvement are associated with a higher rate of conversion total hip uh, when an anatomic reduction is not achieved. Dr. Cruz, the body mentioned that, especially that four millimeter cutoff that he spoke um, about. And then prone ap approach likely has advantage advantages for more displaced anterior column transverse uh, fractures, but may be less ideal for less displaced fractures and centrally obese patients, Dr. Collins uh, pointed out in his article. Um, there was brief mention of the AO um, pelvis and acetabin course, but some of the other upcoming events from the AO in terms of the journal club sessions next month, we're going to be doing one dedicated more so to the uh, web-based learning for the ABOS recertification. I will be doing several of those articles. 
Uh, in April, we'll be doing a webinar on infection and in June uh, on scapular fractures. Yep, thank you faculty and thank you everybody for joining us tonight as well. Thank you.